Good evening. Welcome this evening. Good to see you here on the Wednesday midweek study. It's always good to get into the Word after a few days at work. You've, this is, what they call this day, hump day, you know, get over the hump, you know, the, the week, and, and uh, we've finally got halfway through. We've got a couple more days left, but what a blessing it is to study God's Word. Now, as you know, we're in a new study. We started last week in the book of Exodus. Uh, the subtitle uh, of the book, I, I was so excited last week sharing this with you. You can see it behind me on the screen. The, let's see if we got that subtitle up there. Uh, now I'll go back to the very beginning. There you go. Journey to the Promised Land. So this, this book, Exodus, has, its, has really has its theme is, is getting these, uh, these, the children of Israel, as we ended the book of Genesis, the 12 uh, tribes of Israel that are in uh, Egypt. They are going to grow as a family. Uh, they're going to be prolific. In fact, there'll be several million in, in about 430 years. So this book is really all about how this family goes from just the 70 that we ended up with at the end of Genesis, the 12 sons are wives and kids and stuff, to about 2 million people. So this, this book helps us to understand that. And as you recall, uh, last week in, in Exodus chapter 1, um, that chapter was really uh, uh, bridging that, that critical gap there of, of that period of time and helping us to understand where we were going with this. And I mentioned a couple of things. You know, we get the Ten Commandments in Exodus. We get the different uh, plagues uh, that finally delivered the children of Israel from Pharaoh's power in his hand. But at the end of the book, we get something strikingly important for us as believers, and that's the tabernacle. At the end of the book of Exodus, we get to the tabernacle. And really, the tabernacle, if, if, when you think about the Scripture in its, in, in its fullest, when you read the Scripture and you look at it in its broadest terms, the tabernacle represents God's heart to be with man. It's the tabernacle during the time of the 12 tribes of Israel's wandering that is, it's built, it's constructed, it's conceived, and then God comes and lives in the midst of his people, which is, that's his heart. That's what God has always wanted. And he used to fellowship with Adam, but because of sin, Adam was kicked out of the garden. A holy and righteous God cannot be together with sin. You can't put the two together. We have a holy, righteous God. We had an innocent and righteous Adam and Eve, but they fell. And so God is doing all he can to redeem. And so this book becomes this great narrative on redemption. Exodus really means redemption because God's going to send his deliverer and his name is Moses. So we, we begin now studying about Moses and all the things that God is doing to prepare him to be the deliverer because he's not the deliverer yet. And we'll find out this evening in our study how he gets Moses prepared. He's preparing Moses through some trials. We all are familiar with trials and difficulties in, in our lifetime. There are those in our fellowship that are in difficulties and trials right now. And we're always praying for them. And although we don't know what God's purpose is, there's always a purpose for a trial. We're going to see that tonight in Moses' life. But Moses becomes the next great study in the Bible. We've had Abraham, or the, Adam and Eve, obviously, but Abraham, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
talked a little bit about Judah, but now we're at this great man, Moses. And you'll find Moses' name everywhere in the Bible. You'll find it in the Old and the New Testament. 780 plus times is Moses named in the Bible. He's a very, very key character in the Scripture. So we're going to look at him uh, tonight in a study I've called The Man with Two Mothers. And if you've read the Bible, you understand exactly what's going on there. But we'll get that explanation uh, tonight as we study Exodus chapter 2 tonight. So with your Bibles open, let's ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we thank you for the study of your word. And I just pray, Father, that you would speak loud and clear to each and every one of us here tonight. As I've studied this, Lord, things have come up in my day, and it causes me to take a step back. And, and do I really trust you? Do I rely upon you? And are you allowing things in my life, in our lives as a church, and in individual lives in our church? The suffering is for a purpose, and you're preparing us, Lord. And I pray that we would get it, that we would submit, that I would hear your word. And Lord, help me to declare the truth of your word tonight to these, your people. Open our hearts and eyes and ears. Help us to hear and see the truth of your word. In Jesus we pray, amen. So Exodus begins where Genesis leaves off and God is dealing with his chosen people. They're under the harsh rule of Pharaoh. They, uh, Pharaoh has put them under slavery and uh, Pharaoh is threatened by the multiplying Israelites, they become more than the, the Egyptians in the land. And so he comes up with this plan. He's going to execute every male child. In fact, he, he makes it law that every male Hebrew baby is thrown into the river, as you remember uh, last week. Now, chapter 2 is about God preparing Moses to deliver his, his people, his chosen people, the Hebrews there. And there are primarily three different incidents in this chapter, you could break it down into three sections, that reveal God's work or his providence or his providential hand in the life of Moses. First, we have the birth of Moses that's miraculous. It's a mother's desperate plan to save her child. But again, God is working miraculously in the first 10 verses. And then secondly, we have Moses... His attempt to, to save some of his Hebrew brethren as he grows and understands who he is as a Hebrew. And he sees the mistreatment of his, his Hebrew family, his brothers and sisters, and, and he comes down hard on an Egyptian. In fact, he looks left, he looks right, and he kills the guy. And so we get that story. He makes a huge mistake uh, in this chapter as well. And the third event we see in this chapter is, again, Moses leaves, he runs for fear of his life, he goes out into the desert. Like a lot of great men in the Bible, they find themselves in the desert, in the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness where he stumbles upon these ladies that are around the well, they're drawing water for the camels, and some you know, hardcore shepherds come in there and they chase the ladies off because they're stronger and they're, they're going to water their camels first at the only uh, uh, water well in this vast desert that they find themselves in. And Moses thinks that's unfair. And so he chases off the shepherds for these young ladies. And the young ladies are like, wow, look at this guy. And they run back and tell their dad. And, and, uh, and their dad, Jethro, invites him in. And, and finally, 
you know, he gets married. Uh, uh, he offers one of his daughters to uh, Moses. So these are the great things that we're going to see tonight. But in each one of these incidents, God is preparing Moses. That's the key here. But we get the fascinating story here at the beginning. It's the man with two mothers. And I love this. That's why I've entitled it that way. But my first point this evening as we begin reading in verse 1 is Moses in the ark. Notice this. And a man, Exodus chapter 2, verse 1, of the house of Levi. He went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, there's different translations of that little phrase there. A, godly, a goodly child, a beautiful child, a special child. She hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him dabbed it with asphalt and pitch and put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister, that would be Miriam, stood afar off to know what would be done to her little brother. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and heard the baby cry and had immediate compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. And she knows what that means because it was her dad that made the edict. So think about the whole story here. She, she, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, and she may nurse the child for you. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me. I'm going to be his mother. I'm going to adopt him, but I want you to, to nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. I'm going to pay you. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, two mothers. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. And there's lots going on in this, and I'm alluding to some of it. We're going to look at some of this more in detail, but I, I love to tell the story. I, I so love the Bible. There's so much in there for us, and I hope that you see some things in there for you uh, this evening. But at the end of chapter 1, you'll remember that Pharaoh decreed, he made it national policy to kill the male babies by throwing them into the Nile River. And again, that's the backdrop to these 10 verses that we're reading now here in chapter 2, where Moses, this Hebrew baby, is now going to be thrown into the river. But it's a different kind of a, a situation, as you well know. In verse 1, we get the, the parents of Moses here. You're the parents, but they're not mentioned by name. There's two a man and a woman, but notice they're from the same tribe. Verse 1, notice that. that they're from the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi is the priestly tribe. And this is really important as the story, as the narrative goes along, because it's important for you to understand that God is from the priestly tribe. He's going to bring a minister that is going to do something by delivering his people. So that delivery is, is by a priest, by a man, Moses, from the priestly tribe of Levi. God is doing something special here 
We're supposed to take note of that. That's why it says Levi twice there in verse 1 and 2. Again, because Moses typifies Christ in the Old Testament. His whole life typifies Jesus Christ. When you start looking at the parallels, and I'm going to give you some at the end of the study, but start thinking about that and how Moses' life typifies Christ. In this case, he's the deliverer of the people. The people are in Egypt. It represents sin. Egypt represents idolatry and sin. And now God is going to deliver his people from sin, Egypt, and he's going to put them where? In the promised land. And so it's Moses that typifies Christ in that way. In, in Exodus 6, we're actually told the names, the Jewish names of Moses' parents. You might know them, but here it is on the screen behind me. It's Aram, the man, took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, as wife, and she bore him two children before Moses. And these names will be familiar with you as well. Notice Aaron and Miriam, or, or not Miriam here, but Moses. These are the two boys, but they had a third. Miriam was older. She was born after Aaron. So it's Aaron, Miriam, and then Moses, the two men are mentioned here. Aram, his name means exalted people, and Jochebed, her name means Jehovah is glory. They're going to, these two God-fearing parents here, and I, I really believe they are. I'm going to develop that as we go, but they fear God. She fears God more than Pharaoh. That's number one. That's the first clue. She doesn't do what, what everyone else does when their babies are born. They throw them immediately that day into the river, but she's going to hold this child for months, praying over what she should do. She's not going to obey Pharaoh, but she's going to obey God. Again, in verse 2, you notice that phrase I, I kind of highlighted as we read it, but a beautiful child. The reference there to a beautiful child means that Aram and Jochebed there, they realize that Moses is unique. He's not just beautiful in his little baby fat. He's not just beautiful because he's a little infant. This word, this phrase, if you look at it, it's different in every translation, but if you look at it closely and tie it in with the verses in the New Testament, I believe what they're saying in their son, he's, he's special, he's different, he's special. Um, the, the word there, beautiful child, is the Hebrew tob, T-O-B-E, tob, and it means pleasant, agreeable, happy. But he was different as a child. He, he was special as a child. They already had Aaron and Miriam, and now they have Moses. He's their thirdborn. And, and the, the second reason I think that he's special here is that Aram and Jochebed, they, they see beyond his little baby demeanor. And they believe and trust God that has, God has something special for their children. And as we do this study, I hope as a parent, if you have children at home, I hope that as a parent you'll make some application here. And when God gives you a child, there's a purpose. And it's your responsibility as a parent to, to encourage them, to pray over them, to lead them and guide them, not to just take your hands off and give them to public education. That is not what a godly parent does. You are working with them. You're developing their moral character by teaching them the Bible. The reason this nation is in trouble is not because of Antifa. It's because we took the Bible out of schools, and we're not training morally our kids. 
there was a time that we did that. And if you look at the founding fathers, they were Christians. Unlike the, the current uh, news would tell you, or the current teachers in schools would tell you, but with this nation was founded on biblical, Judeo-Christian biblical principles. And our founders, Benjamin Rush and many others, were pastors and they're the ones, Jefferson, I've been to Washington. You walk around Washington, you'll see God's name everywhere, and all the monuments is everywhere if you've ever, if you've ever been there. Because our founders were deeply attached to the morality of God's word. And you cannot function a free society like we have in America without this. And because we've eliminated that in public schools and instruction, and we're trying to eliminate the Ten Commandments from life, I mean, who can't live under those wonderful Ten Commandments. We're going to study them here in chapter 20. But because we've taken those away, we have children and, and people that are just unruly and, and out of control in our culture. So parents, I believe that Jacob, Bed, and Aram, they were godly, and they were praying over their child, and they're going to give them direction, and they'll be given more opportunity to influence little Moses as he grows, as we'll find out here. But here, again, the application is, is that children are a gift from the Lord. And as parents, you have been entrusted to raise them that way. Let me give you a couple of verses real quick. Psalm 127.3, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. The reward is God. You give, him, you give your children back to the Lord to serve him. That's, that's the goal, not to just have a child that makes money. I'm going to send him to the best school and, and make sure he gets a great education so that he can make money. That's not the goal of being a parent. Your goal as a parent, again, and I know this goes against the grain, but your goal as a parent is not to have the brightest, smartest child. It is in some circles, you know, the awards and all the special things. And, but that's not the goal as a parent. The goal as a parent is to have a biblically knowledgeable, morally responsible child. And when you do that, God will bless your family. I believe this family here becomes a great example as we look at their, their lives. Proverbs 22.6 is a verse most of you parents know. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's important to instruct your children in the Lord. And Aram and Jochebed, I, I believe they trusted the Lord that one day he would use. They looked at him. He's so special. He's, honey, look how different he is from Miriam. Look how different he is from Aaron. Wow, what, what is God? God's going to do something with this child. And in the back of their minds, they're thinking, Someone's going to deliver the people. I, I believe the Holy Spirit's working. God's working all these things in the background uh, beyond them as well. And so after three months, this little baby making noise in the house, you know. I didn't know you had a baby in the house, you know. When did you have a baby, Jochebed? You know, she kept it quiet, secret, because... If, they, if everybody knew about it, you've got to get rid of that baby. That baby's going into the river. So they were trying to keep the baby quiet, but they couldn't do it. Three months later, they, they had to do something. They were beyond their ability to keep the baby quiet or whatever it was. But again, it was their faith in God that would not allow them to just go along with the policy of the nation and murder their son, even though the law of the land was death for every Hebrew boy. So I, I, their faith is commended, and also their faith in God. 
trusting the life of their son to the Lord and, and hiding him. But notice in Hebrews 11, again, you'll find Moses throughout the Bible. In Hebrews, he's spoken about, Hebrews 11, verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. And here's why. Because they saw he was this special child, beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. Why? Because they feared God. They were godly. They didn't didn't care what the king was going to do. They feared the Lord. And going back here to Exodus 2, verse 3, notice with me in verse 3, but when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it in with asphalt and pitch and put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done with him. Again, Moses is put in, in an ark. Now that word ark we've already read. We read it in the book of Genesis in relation to Noah building the ark. It's exactly the same word, teba. And it has the, it's, all it is, it's not a, it's not a vessel. It's, it doesn't have a rudder. Like the ark, it didn't have any capability to to move itself. There was no captain to tell it to go a certain way, no sails to move it. It's just a rescue box. And Moses now is placed in this little rescue box. And again, I see the the faith of his parents, Jochebed and Aram. I believe they knew the story, that the story had been passed on through all the families. They had been talking about this story of, of Noah. And that story would have been very important to them. They would have been direct descendants, you know. And so they, they heard the story. It was an ark. And so I believe this godly mother, Jochebed, is responding. And she wants him rescued. So she's going to try to emulate what she heard about the story of Noah. She makes this box, this rescue box. And by faith, she puts Moses in this little boat, trusting that God would take care of it all. It's, it's an amazing story of faith. Again, in a literal sense, Jochebed. She really did exactly what was demanded. She threw her son into the river, right? So she's somewhat obeying, but she's also trusting the Lord by putting him in, in that ark. And it's a perfect strategy there as she places him in a certain place where the, she, you know, the river current's going to move and she, she puts him right in that strategically located spot in the river. And that's when this little baby begins to cry. It says in verse 5, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the water, which would be very common. You know, there's a place for them to bathe. And uh, just like there's a place for everybody to go get water for their houses, obviously in a, a different place downriver, they would go to bathe. And they, they, everybody met there. It was a social place. And they met there along the riverside. And she saw the ark among the reeds. And she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And she heard the baby cry. So all of this is God's working out everything. God has a plan. And he's perfectly providentially working in the background. All of these situations coming together. God leading the parents by faith, as they trust in God, God is leading them. And then he led the heart of Pharaoh's daughter to go down at a certain time to, to bathe. The currents of the river were guided at the per- perfect place so that the ark would get there at the perfect spot, the current of the river, the, the, the precise time of bathing. 
And then I imagine God sneaks his fingers in the bottom of the ark and pinches the baby right at the right time. I mean, if you, if you think about it, God is orchestrating this whole event. God is in control. And again, we're, we go through hardships, we go through suffering, we go through difficulty. I can't imagine what Jochebed was thinking by putting her baby, a three-month-old, into an ark. And it just, it was so hard to let go. And yet God is in control of this whole situation here, working all things together for good. Let me read an illustration that kind of goes along with this text. A missionary named Frederick Nolan. He lived in North Africa in the early 1800s. He was being hunted by soldiers who were ordered to find him and to kill him because he was a Christian missionary there in North Africa. He had been running and hiding for days until finally he was surrounded by soldiers and he found a small cave in the side of the hill, a little, little tiny cave, only about six feet deep. And so he crawled into the cave and he heard soldiers approaching all around him, looking all around him, and he began to pray. He thought for sure they were going to look in the cave and find him. But that's when he noticed, as he looked outside the cave, he noticed a large spider weaving a web over the opening. And when the soldiers came up and looked into the cave, they saw a spider web, and they knew that no one had just gone in there because there was a spider web there. If he was in there, you know, or, or, there's no way he could have gotten in there without d- d- disturbing the spider web. So they just passed on by. And later, Frederick Nolan wrote in his journal, where God is, a spider's web is like a wall. And where God is not, a wall is but a spider's web. I love that illustration. Moses' preservation was divinely orchestrated by the hand of God. It's a miraculous story, wouldn't you agree? And again, I love the miracles in the Bible. So God's plan was that Moses would now have two mothers raising him. It's an amazing story. Let me show you that in verse 7. My next point here, Moses' two moms. Then his sister said to Pharaoh, verse 7, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Again, instead of losing her baby here, Jochebed ends up nursing her own son and getting paid for it. This is a miracle. I I don't know. You could say, well, maybe she strategically tried to work all the situations out so it would kind of sort of maybe happen the way she had planned. But but again, I see God's miraculous hand in this whole thing. And then there's Pharaoh's daughter. That's Moses, I call him Moses' second mother here. She knew of her father's National policy for genocide. She knew of that. Obviously, it's, it's, it was her dad that made that ruling. But when she looks in this basket and she sees this beautiful little baby and she hears the little cry of this child, her heart just breaks. 
she just has this maternal instinct. I gotta, I gotta protect this child. I gotta take this child and, and help. I'm, I'm sure that some of you mothers can really relate to Jochebed here in the story. She had compassion on him, verse six. This is one of the Hebrew children. She knew. She knew it was one of the Hebrews, but she had compassion. She wanted to intervene or that baby might die. So very interestingly here, she does the unthinkable, the unbelievable. She takes this child for her own. Again, God is working providentially, and God is preparing Moses. This is the story of how Moses is prepared in his early years. And in this one chapter, we're going to go from that to 40 years old. So, I mean, it, it all happens pretty quickly uh, in this chapter here. So God's working that way, providentially, saving Moses here. And then his biological mother, Jochebed, nursed and cared for him. It's a brilliant plan, really. And the child grew, verse 10, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Now, we don't know how old he was when he was weaned. Um, a lot of times in this culture, it was five years old. We don't know. Uh, we don't know how old he was. But I believe that he was old enough to hear some stories from his mom. I believe that he heard about the faith in the Hebrew people. As we'll see later in the story, it's pretty apparent that he knew some things. And so we don't know how long he was with his mom, but for a time. And then he is turned over to Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, and she adopts him as her, her own there. And she names him in verse 10. She calls him Moses because I drew him out of the water. It's interesting. Uh, again, Moses means the one who draws out or drawn out. So Moses' name, really, it's kind of a pun, a play on, on words here. Moses means to be drawn out. But here's the important point. Moses, he's adopted he has Hebrew roots, but now he's part of the royal family. He's, he's, he's a person of stature and privilege and education. And so he got the best of both worlds. He got, in the, at this time, he, he knew he had the foundation of being Hebrew. He had godly parents. And now he's going to be raised by Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, who had access to all in the kingdom, all education and, and all the stuff that goes along with that. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus wrote that Moses was the heir to the throne in Egypt, that he was being groomed and prepared. He was so wise and, and godly, they recognized something special about this man, and so they were starting to prepare him to be, uh, to take the throne in Egypt. And he also, Josephus wrote, led the armies of the Egyptians into battle against the Ethiopians and won. So he was a man that understood war like a general. And so he, he had a heritage there. He had uh, experience there. So the other side of that is when he came back from war, or when he walked through town, think about it. He had an entourage of secret service, and he had people all around him that would feed him lunch and, and carry him in a carriage. And, you know, with one of those big old, I always say one of those big old fans, you know, they put over the pharaohs. So here's Moses, and he's got this entourage wherever he goes, and, and soldiers around him, bow down to, to Moses, your leader. 
as he went through town and as he did all these different things in, in that area. Again, Moses was living this royal life, this privileged uh, life, but deep down he knows exactly who he is. He sees the people his, as he goes through the town and he goes and does these different things. He recognizes that, that he's a Hebrew, and look at how they're being treated, mistreated. I know who I am, I, I, I'm that, but I'm this. I, I'm wearing royal garments, people bow before me, I have power. I believe Moses knew all of those things. And I say that because, and here's my next point, because he had two mothers. And both of his mothers did their best. They both taught Moses to lead. His Egyptian mother gave him the best education that Egypt had to offer. And he was trained like a prince. In Acts chapter 7, it's Stephen that proclaims this, but let me show you what it says there. Again, you'll find Moses all over the Bible. Notice this verse behind me on the screen, Acts 7. But when he was sent out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. So that was education. And notice, he was mighty in words and deeds. So he wasn't like the Hebrews that were uneducated. He knew the language, probably of the Hebrews and the Egyptians. He knew history. He knew people's names. He was an educated man. But his mother as well, his mother Jochebed, his, his Hebrew mother, she, I believe, as a woman of faith, introduced him to the God of Israel. And she would have told him stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Noah. She would have instilled within him a, a love for God and a faith in God as well. So he gets the best of both worlds here. In fact, it's in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 where her instruction in his life really took root. Notice this long text behind me on the screen, Hebrews 11, it's a long text. You can look it up if you want to or make a note. But by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So in Hebrews, the writer is kind of giving, uh, giving kind of an overview of what he's learned there from his mother. So Moses, he had all that the world would offer. He's the prince, really, of Egypt, but he really knew who he was because of Jochebed, his Hebrew mom. Now, beginning in verse 11... We get this story after he's 40 years old. So we've just been given the kind of his birth and, and his formative years and his, his understanding of who he is in that culture. He's the prince, but he also has this understanding of uh, he, he's going to reject some of the, the Egyptian culture. And again, God is preparing Moses to be the deliverer here. This is really the key turning point in his life. And I've entitled this verses 11 through 15, Moses in trouble, because really that's what we see here. Look at verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out to, the, to his brethren and he looked at their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way. 
and he looked that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, a couple of things here in this, this story. There's no doubt that what he did was wrong. This is premeditated murder. He saw, he figured it out, he thought about it, and he killed that Egyptian. Again, he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one around, he killed him. So his motivation to stop the torture of one of his brethren was probably the right motivation. But his act was sin. His act was wrong there. And he killed the Egyptian. Acts chapter 7 says that Moses thought his actions would be seen by the Hebrews around him. So he's starting to get this idea that God wants to use him. And so he, he just had enough of it. He couldn't stand it anymore. And he thought, I'm going to kill these guys. They're hurting my people. And then he thought, if I don't get caught by the Egyptians, at least the Hebrews will get on my side because I'm, I'm killing one of the people that, that are beating them. And then they'll, they'll put their trust in me to lead them. I mean, that was his, his thought. And we see that again in Acts chapter 7. Here's the text. Notice behind me on the screen. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed, here it is, that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. So the Hebrews that were persecuted by the Egyptians, they didn't get it. They just saw him as a murderer. They didn't see, and, and they probably had spite. He was probably dressed up in his Egyptian garb. They, they, they didn't like how he was dressed. They didn't like where he was, his office. They, they rejected that, the politics of, of Egypt and the Pharaoh, and they just saw him as one of the Egyptians rather than a Hebrew. So after Moses kills the Egyptians, the Hebrews reject him. Notice verse 13, and when he went out, the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And, and Moses goes up to him, to the one that did wrong. He said, why are you, why are you hitting? This is your brother. He's Hebrew. What are you, why are you guys fighting? That's really what it means here. And then he said, verse 14, the, the, one, the two that are fighting, who made you prince and judge over us? Did you intend to kill me just like you killed the Egyptian the other day? Wow, pretty powerful words. So Moses feared and he said, surely this thing is known. Everybody knows. All the, all the Hebrews know. I'm sure all the Egyptians know. So he gets fear in his heart. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard that he had killed one of the Egyptians, he went to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh, and he went out to the desert, to the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So he went wandering off. He, he didn't stay there. He knew that what he had done was wrong. His conscience got to him. He couldn't stay there anymore. Everybody knew about it. And, and Pharaoh wanted to kill him. So he leaves. He goes out into the desert. Again, God is working. God is preparing Moses here through all of these, these circumstances here. So he's 40 years old. He's prosperous. He's in Egypt. He has living the life of luxury there. Uh, in Egypt, educated and all, and then his, ruins his whole life by making this fatal decision here by killing the Egyptian, rejected by his own people. Who made you prince? Verse 
14 over and judge over us, they said. Now, Moses, again, is a type of Christ. Let me give you a couple more examples. Moses and Jesus both were miraculously preserved in childhood. Remember how Herod wanted to kill all the babies. Both Moses and Jesus offered deliverance for the people. Moses here in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New. And then both were rejected by their own people. Isn't that interesting? There are a lot more than that. And I'll keep showing you those. Each week you'll see more and more. So Moses, again, is a type of Christ. He isn't Christ, but he's a type of Christ. And here's another interesting comparison. This is one I found in a commentary that I thought was really, really interesting. Moses, like Jesus after him, could not deliver, think about this, while living in the palace of glory. Jesus left his throne of authority and glory, and where did he come? Came down. The eternal God leaves the throne, and he comes down, and he became a man. Philippians chapter 2, the, the great kenosis passage. He became one of his created beings. He, he was God, but he was still man. It's an incredible truth. So Moses, like Jesus, couldn't deliver when he was on the throne in Egypt. Jesus came off his throne to a humble place in order to deliver his people. Moses is in trouble with the Hebrews and the Egyptians. So he leaves his throne, and now he's out in the desert. He's running for his life. Another interesting comparison. But it's here in verse 15 that Moses is going to run to this place called Midian. And my next point here, he's running there, verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then these other guys, shepherds, came and chased the girls away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered the lady's flock. And when they came to Ruel, or that's Jethro, their father, he said, how is it that you've come so early today? Because normally it takes you hours to get done because the shepherds every day would chase the girls off and get their their water first. How, how did you finish so quickly uh, today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. Now, Midian is the land, if I should have had a map, but Saudi Arabia, just that's where it is. It's Saudi Arabia, Midian. So they're out in the desert. There's nothing there, hardly anything grows. Like a few little, you know, mesquite-type bushes and some small you know, when, the, when, the, when it does rain, you know, a couple things flower and blossom and then they die. It's just out in the middle of nowhere. All these people had to get their water from one oasis there. Uh, they were all trying to get water from the one place to keep their herds going. And so it's a real, Saudi Arabia is a very, very desolate place. Uh, but it's the Sinai Peninsula. That's, that's Midian. And there's a guy there called the priest of Midian there. That's Jethro. And Midian was one of the sons of Abraham. 
You can go back and look at that. It's in Genesis chapter 25. So most believe, because it says the priest of Midian, and because we, we know that Abraham's offspring, this was an area that he went and settled in this area. So that he becomes the priest of Midian. So God has led providentially in the wilderness, Moses, right to, like a magnet, bing, to this priest of Midian. Again, God is working. He's leading. He's preparing Moses in every single step here. It brings him to this specific family at a certain time. And Moses defends the girls, and, and they go home and tell their dad. And, and again, they call him an Egyptian. Why? Because the clothes he's wearing. He's not wearing clothes like shepherds. He's wearing clothes, really nice clothes, maybe golden bands and and a headpiece and all the things that you'd see on an Egyptian person. And so they recognize him as an Egyptian, and they tell their father Jethro. And so Jethro, notice what he does. So they said, he said to his daughters, verse 20, where is he? Why is it that you left the man? Call him that he may come and eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with, with the priest, with Jethro and his daughters, the man. And Jethro gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses, and she bore him a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Gershom means foreigner or stranger. So he names his first son Gershom there. Now here's the application. Moses was powerful. Moses was mighty. Moses had the whole of Egypt at his disposal. He was a general. He was a leader. He was educated. They were grooming him to be the next pharaoh. And then all of a sudden, everything changes in his life, and he loses it all. And he finds himself out in the wilderness just wandering around. He, had, he was running again. He, he's just running around. God is preparing this man for a monumental task. And God is going to do all these things in his life to humble him. Just think about it. Maybe he was proud about who he was and his stature and his name. Yes, he's a Hebrew, but he had power. And so God is going to humble him by taking him out into a foreign land. Now he's a stranger. He's married to a, a foreigner. And his life is changing and God is humbling him so that in the future he'll trust God and not his own decisions. He, he made his decision to kill an Egyptian thinking that would help him. didn't help. Whenever you try to help God out, we've learned that, haven't we? Studying Genesis, bad plan. Let, let God do what he's going to do. Take your hands off. And that's what God is training him in right now. God is training him to be a humble servant just like the apostle Peter gives instruction to young believers, and I love these verses. Let me share with you a couple of them. 1 Peter 5 says, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Peter is talking about those in the church, but notice he says, Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. That's what's going on in Moses' life right now. He was too big for his britches, too proud. His name, he was going to rely on him and his power and his name. And God says, nope, you've got to rely on me. And so he takes him out into the desert. Again, God's work to humble Moses. We see it in Numbers chapter 12. Notice this verse behind me, a short one here. Now the man Moses was very humble. 
more than all the men who were on the face of the earth. Why? And what made him so humble? It was that God led him into the desert, took everything away, took all his power, took all his authority, put him in this. And all he was, you know what he was when he was in the desert? He was a shepherd. He became a shepherd, chasing around sheep in the dusty desert because God had a lot to teach and prepare him for. Very interesting. Again, when you look at different people in the Bible, you'll see that same kind of experience. And God used this family that was all girls and Jethro to humble and to shape and to, and, and God used some sheep in his life as well. And, and, and like I said, God's done that many times in the Bible. We see it again and again. Jacob, he was led into the wilderness for that wrestling match with God, as you recall. John the Baptist is another example. He, he began his ministry all by himself out in the desert. He was a man that ate locusts and wild honey. I think he just dipped them, you know, locusts and honey. That might be okay. I mean, I, I can't imagine eating a locust by itself, but a little honey on there maybe. But, but again, the point is John the Baptist was isolated. He was out in the desert. God had a purpose and plan for that isolation. Have you ever felt isolated? Has God ever taken you to a place where you felt like, I am the only one here. No one else knows what I'm going through. I believe God leads us in those places so that we will rely on him. And he's shaping us. And he's molding us. And every time I say that, I believe that with all my heart, but I certainly don't like to be out on my own. Do you? But I find myself, God will put me there. The Apostle Paul was three years in the wilderness. The church thought he was a murderer. And, the, and all you read the book of Acts, and Paul, that man, that, that Pharisee, he's killing Christians. And all of a sudden, he shows up three years after his his. Jesus came and spoke to him and said, why are you kicking against the goads, Paul? You're fighting against me. And he had a conversion experience. He chose to follow Christ. He, he wasn't just immediately elected and saved, in my opinion. He was given the opportunity, and he turned to Jesus Christ and was born again. And then it was three years. Remember, he went out into the wilderness for three years. And he comes back, and he, on Peter's door, remember the story? Very interesting. Paul, isn't Paul then? Peter had to bring him because the Jews, they didn't want us to touch him. They thought he was a killer. So Peter had to say, no, wait, wait, wait. God's done a work in his life. God's changed him. Again, the miraculous power of God. But all these examples I'm giving you is God will take you into a place. God took Moses into the desert so he could humble him, so he could teach him. And here's some lessons we can learn. Right before I finish here tonight, let me give you a couple lessons. God is never in a hurry, but he always keeps his promises. Number two, if you're a parent, you need to build an ark for your kids. You need to build that little ark and give them to the Lord. Trust your children with the Lord. And number three, God's laws are higher than man's. Trust God alone. Obey God rather than man. And then God's providence, we see it in Moses' life. We see it over and over. Now, these last three verses, really quick, they're just God at the end of this chapter. He's saying, I remember my children. We're going to go from Moses to God's purpose and plan. Verse 23, now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. 
Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of their bondage. So God heard their groaning, verse 24, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. So God heard them. It was God's plan all along to use the deliverer, Moses, and we're going to see how that happens, and we get to this wonderful, wonderful history here of Israel, the children of Israel, and how they're delivered through this man, Moses. But this chapter is really key, the character of this man, God shaping this man, God taking him out into the desert. But all along, God hears the groaning of his children. God has a plan and a purpose for this man, Moses, and he's going to deliver his children because God never forgets his promises. God made a covenant with Abraham, and that covenant was for many, many children so that you could be a blessing to the world in this land, the promised land. And God hasn't forgotten any of that. And just as God made a covenant through Abraham for the children of Israel, God's made a covenant with you and I. And that covenant is in his son, Jesus Christ. It's called the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a new covenant, Jesus said, and it's in my blood. And I'm going to make this covenant with anyone that will put their faith in Jesus Christ. You put your faith in Jesus Christ and you're immediately covered by the blood of Jesus. That's the covenant. And here it is in a simplified version here, Ephesians 2, 8. Most of you know it. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And not that of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's faith in Jesus Christ and his work of shedding his blood on the cross that saves anyone who trusts in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the study of your word tonight and the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant that you fulfilled and that you promise here at the end of chapter 2 in Exodus. But more importantly, the covenant that, the new covenant that Jesus made with all that put their faith in him. I pray tonight for anyone here that has never trusted Christ, that they would trust him all the more, that they would put their faith in him. They would turn from their sin, repent of their, their lives, and turn to Jesus Christ. And by faith, you'll bring them into your family. You'll save them. You'll forgive them. You'll have mercy upon them. Lord, thank you for the gift of salvation. I pray, Lord, that that work that you alone can do, that you would do that, that you would draw people to yourself. Those listening to us uh, tonight by the web broadcast or those that are here, we ask, God, that you would do that work of salvation. We thank you, Lord, for this wonderful narrative and pray that we would use it wisely to learn, to grow, and, and apply it into our very lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.